My guest today is Jason Knight. Jason is product director at Udeal, a company offering real-time insights on SMEs to financial services providers. Jason is also the host of the One Night in Product podcast, where he speaks to great product leaders around the industry. Jason has been working in product roles at enterprises or selling to enterprises his whole career. He's also one of the best followers on product management on Twitter. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Etienne, thank you very much for having me and thank you, thank you very much for the kind intro as well. <laughs> uh, so maybe as a first question, so why B2B or why enterprise? Like what initially attracted you to the space and what has kept you there all these years? Well, there's a number of ways I could answer that question. And I think as with a lot of product people, you kind of end up happening upon your first role. Like if you ask me to look back, I could probably retrofit choosing B2B, but actually B2B is just where I landed. And I'll also say that for a large number of years, I mean, I'm quite old. I've been around for a while and it's not always been a product role. I've always been working in technology and originally market research, selling to big companies to try and help you know, develop solutions to solve their problems and get insight for them. But for a long time, I was working very much on the development side. I was working kind of as an analyst for a bit, kind of moving up into development and then moving into team leadership. And one of the things for me that really becomes clear whenever you're in any kind of lead, whenever you're in any kind of leadership role is you're automatically becoming a bit more producty. And I'm, I'm going to back that up because like, you can't just care about how you build things anymore when you get into like team leadership and start having to deal with stakeholders, deal with clients, deal with everyone else that you have to deal with. And I think it was a real slow segue from developing the stuff into deciding what to develop and working out what to develop. And that took a few years. I'd say that, you know, back in, back in the day, it was very much also very waterfally, very slow. And like the company I worked for was one of these archetypal big hundred year old companies that had everything that you'd see in like the innovators dilemma and stuff like that. It was not a very agile startup or anything like that. But then back in 2017, we had a new CTO come in. He brought with him a copy of the lean startup and started waving it around and saying, Hey, this is pretty cool. We should start doing stuff like this. Now, it's very difficult to do that sort of thing in a big enterprise. But I read the book and I was like, wow, this is actually, you know, this makes a lot of sense. And that then really started the push much more into actual product management and then eventually out of the enterprise that I was working for and into startups, scale-ups, still working B2B because to be honest, that's where all my experience was. Like it was going to be a very big conceptual leap for me to go from a hundred year old market research company into, I don't know, some kind of social media app for dogs or something like that. It just wasn't a big, you know, that, that wasn't a really feasible move. So moving into startups and scale-ups that are serving enterprises and in some cases, the types of company that I used to work for and in some cases, just different types of companies, I think that kind of happened naturally as well. But yeah, I've never looked back. I think the startup world and the scale-up world, they just offer a lot more and they kind of resonate a lot more with me. So you're saying you don't like dogs? I don't like what? Big companies? Dogs. Oh, dogs. Oh, I love dogs. I, uh, <laughs> I would love to have a dog. I'm not allowed a dog. My wife says that I can't have a dog because A, we have a cat and B, she has the sneaking suspicion that while I'm doing all my podcast recordings, she'll end up walking the dog. So <laughs> um, when I retire one day, maybe I'll be able to get a dog. All right. Future plans. Perfect. Uh, so <laughs> we're often talking about early stage companies on the podcast, but let's try to cover what happens uh, once the product 
once a product company finds product market fit. Uh, so if you're joining a company or working on enterprise product, what would tell you that a company's product as product market fit? Well, I mean, obviously, if a customer, well, obviously, if a company has clients, that's a good start. But I don't think that's it's not just as simple as that, right? So I think, and I've seen, there's been companies either that I've talked to in the past or even that I've worked with that have they've kind of happened upon what they think is product market fit because they've got a few foundational clients. And if you think of things like crossing the chasm, they've kind of got the early adopters, people that will frankly buy just about anything. And I think you talk about this a bit in your book as well. Like in some cases, they're basically paying rounding errors on their accounts to get access to a possibly good solution. And I think the thing is that some of these people will buy pretty much anything, to be honest. And I think one of the warning signs for me is that if you go into a company or if you're interviewing with a company or if you kind of get your spidey sense around a company and you sit there and say 35%, 40% more of the revenue is coming from one client, you might start to consider that they don't necessarily not have product market fit. They could have, but it's not guaranteed anymore because so much of the money that they're getting in is being pulled in from a very small number of users effectively. And that means that effectively this little company can start to get bullied around. And if the company gets bullied around, then you start ending up building additional extra stuff for your big bear clients. And again, they're paying the money. If they walk out, maybe people get fired. So you probably end up having to do some of that work against your will to some extent. And I think that's the thing that you really, or that I really look out for. There's a couple of things really. One of which is that, what I just said. And the other is if there's like a really strong services arm from the beginning, that's not necessarily a problem, but it does not It does potentially imply that the product that they have actually isn't strong enough to stand on its own and that the company are going to have difficulty scaling. So, so can the product fly on its own? without the need of the services versus the services just adding on top of the revenue. Uh, for the yeah, company. so there's the whole Wizard of Oz thing, right, which is a very good experimentation technique. You can, you can sit there yeah. and you can basically say, hey, let's do it manually for a bit and maybe that'll work out. And you know, I was talking to David Bland about that and he was saying, hey, well, you know, sometimes that's never a problem. Like if you get to a point where that's actually sustainable, the amount of work you have to do to sustain that, actually works out for you and the unit the unit economics are fine then you know godspeed but if you're in a position where you're so reliant on that wizard of oz person behind the curtain to actually keep the product moving and to actually scale it and every single new client becomes additional people that you need to hire again you start to really be concerned that this is not something that could sustain itself and you might again consider that you don't really have product market fit for your actual say SaaS product you may have more product market fit in a, I don't know, in a broader sense of the term, like, you know, you have, if you include services and all the manual labor that you have to put in, but it, you're definitely going to have trouble scaling it. So, okay. So if we assume that the company has product market fit, like what would you yeah. recommend that the company does afterwards? So you just, it just figured out, like I said, we have sufficient product market fit with next. I mean, I guess a lot of this depends on how you got to the product market fit in the first place, right? So if you've frankly happened upon it, maybe from some foundational clients, you've got to where you've got, you've managed to have enough discipline to build something that lots of people want, but you just happen to have that embedded with a few clients first, then, you know, you're in a good spot. 
you've basically been doing a bit of product thinking to start with and you've probably got a good platform to build off of. If you've got to a point where you've kind of got product market fit, but not really because it's really so super optimized for the people that you're, you know, for your foundational clients, that's where I think you really need to start to insert proper client, proper product thinking. So, for example, if you've been in a situation where maybe the CEO or the rest of the leadership team have kind of been the proxy product people, they've kind of been doing this stuff themselves. I mean, that's fine, but they're going to have to hand over the reins and start to listen to customers and listen to users. And the easiest way for them to do that, of course, is to get proper product people in to do proper product stuff, start the discovery flywheel going, start to understand things that the cl- that not just the clients that they're talking to already want, but that the wider market wants, you know, start getting ahead of trends, start getting ahead of the curve. Because all the time you're being driven by the, the demands that you see in front of you, and obviously that really implies a sort of a sales-led approach, then you're not necessarily going to be able to make the big changes that, or you know, the big impact that you want to make because you're too busy chasing your tail around the smaller stuff. So trying to get ahead of the curve, applying that good product thinking. If you weren't doing bigger, wider user research and discovery, then start doing that. Pull in some kind of product team. It doesn't have to be a big one to start with. And then start actually turning the product flywheel and starting to make good decisions rather than everything being based on what you thought you knew yeah so so speaking about making good decisions so as a product manager or a product director in your case working on enterprise product who are you building for like how do you shape the product (laughs) when there are many different stakeholders at every client they might not all be in agreement the customer may not be the user the end users so like who are you building the product for and how do you figure that out? Well, you're building it for both, right? The way that I've, as when I say both, I mean the users and the buyers because they tend to be different, especially when you're selling into the enterprise. So if I'm selling to the enterprise, I'm presumably going for a six-month-long sales cycle, talking through layers of procurement, loads of different internal stakeholders that have to align around my product, all the vested interests and politics that that implies as well at the other side. So you know, you know this, I know this, this is a process. And you've got to impress those people to get them to buy it. At the same time, those people, in many cases, are not actually going to be the users of your product and they're never actually going to see it. So they care a lot about the strategic and the enablement that come, the, the, the stuff that they can do, that how you can make them look good, the macro level cost efficiencies, the monitoring that they can do of their staff, whatever it is that they care about within the confines of what your product does. And you have to get past that to actually even sell it into them in the first place and get that first, whatever, 50 grand, 100 grand deal or whatever it is that you, however you sell it. Once you're in, of course, these people still care, but you've also got the additional wrinkle. You've now got people using the platform as well. So it has to be delightful, just like any other platform for any other type of person. But these people aren't the ones that are actually signing a check. So you still need to keep an eye on the other lot (laughs) the people that are actually signing those checks because come renewal time you need to be able to show that there's a strategic direction that you can take these people along on a journey and enable things constantly going forward that enables them to do things that they care about either because they've told you that they care about them or there are strategic macro level trends industry trends whatever's going on but you also need to make sure that you've not got loads of people your users moaning at these people internally that this solution is absolutely terrible doesn't do half their stuff and that they have to sign up for three other solutions 
and remember three other logins just to do the bits that your product doesn't do. However, my, <laughs> my solution to that last part is always to get an Excel export into the earliest sprint that you can with any B2B product. And that's, that might sound stupid, but like if there's going to be things that your product doesn't do, the easiest thing, rather than keep chasing your tail and just sitting there trying to work out ways to do this or adding layers of services on top of whatever to just try and desperately keep hold of these clients, give them an Excel export. They can dump the stuff into Excel if they need to, make the pie chart that they need to, and maybe that'll keep them happy rather than just like trying to jump on every single fire for every single niche use case that every single potential renewal requires to keep you going. So in the example that you were kind of referring to or thinking about, uh, you mentioned procurement. Like, would you categorize procurement as your buyer or would the buyer in that case be the functional leader that might have initiated the purchase or would they both be still important as you're, you're building out the solution or does just procurement get out, get out of the way afterwards? So I think that the procurement team are not really the buyer, but you absolutely have to get past them. And there are going to be regulatory concerns, potentially, depending on the industry. There are going to be potentially cost control concerns, of course. There's going to be a lot of things that they care about that are actually not at all the thing that your product is. It's not really living or dying on the merits of. No one's going in necessarily to a, or putting into their marketing materials, hey, we're ISO whatever compliant, right? I mean, you might have it as a little badge down the bottom, but it's not like your core value proposition. But that is something that these procurement teams will very, very much care about. And this is where the challenge comes with things like product-led growth, which is obviously a big trend and something that I think that we should try and use as much of as we can. But at the same time, you're not really going to get a bunch of procurement people to just say, yeah, yeah, just let the CDO or the CIO or whatever, just pay on a credit card like, and then just buy a bunch of licenses for people like that obviously can happen at some companies, but in big enterprises, they're very unlikely to buy this whole new global system for all of their different offices on a credit card and just let everyone self on board. So, you know, I, again, I think product-led growth is a really interesting trend and we should try to lean on aspects of it as much as possible. But this procurement process is a constant theme in lots and lots of big enterprise and B2B sales. Well, okay, so let's go in that direction then. So you're mentioning product-led growth, where the product is kind of the main thing that attracts people and people are uh, self-signing into the product, oftentimes yep. self-onboarding. So in that case, like, how do you see uh, product-led growth or PLG impacting enterprise products moving forward? Like, how do you see that evolving, that relationship evolving moving forward? I think that in some cases, you actually can get this kind of self-sign-up thing going, right? So... If you've got a product that is aimed at the top end, aimed at the enterprise, but has some function, but has some functionality that is potentially useful for smaller businesses, you could have a long tail that you could, you know, you could PLG as much as you want, right? Maybe even give them self sign up, self onboarding, and just have a real hands off experience. That's not something that I think a lot of enterprises necessarily want or that would resonate with them. But certainly for the that long tail, I think that you can try to do as much of that as possible. I think that for me, where product-led growth really starts to shine when you start thinking about what you need to do to make your product attractive and be able to be self-signed up to 
to be able to be self-onboarded to. It's all about the quality of experience of the tool, right? So if you're in a situation where you've got a rubbish UI, rubbish flow, everything's inefficient, everything's confusing. I mean, we've all seen the stupid memes online with the, you know, this Apple did this and Google did this and your app looks like this and it's got 5,000 buttons and whatever. Now, I do think, for example, that there are many Apple and Google products that have terrible UIs as well. But I get the point, like, it's really easy to overcomplicate a SaaS tool. I don't think that everything can just be a smash here button because some tools legitimately do complicated things. On the other hand, we shouldn't use the fact that salespeople are going in and smoothing over our experience and CS people and training people are going in to smooth over the onboarding as an excuse to not do some of that good UX, UI work to actually make sure that the products that we deliver to people are actually good for them to use. Because it's not like the old days where you had to be like an expert to get access to a certain system. Like everyone's got access to everything these days. Everyone knows how to use, not everyone, but the vast majority of people know how to use apps and are used to signing into things and doing things in a digital fashion. So we can't sit there and hide behind salespeople or hide behind service people anymore and use that as an excuse. So we should bring as many of the product-led growth principles about onboarding, simplicity, making our tools as delightful to use as possible. And of course, that potentially has the side effect that you could potentially one day offer a free trial or you could potentially one day offer self-sign up or even sooner if you have that long tail. But of course, the old cliche about product-led growth for, say, enterprise products is that you definitely don't want people logging into your enterprise product because it looks awful, it's hard to use, difficult to get value out of, and people aren't going to buy it if they do that. So you have to kind of obscure it. And I think that's something that has to go away. So do you think it might be a better approach to uh, just get the, the DR enterprises to discover the initial value? And then the company is probably better off to transition to an actual sales process on top, like layer that on top of the uh, initial try or initial uh, assessment of the product? Yeah, so probably. I think it's definitely a thing to think about, right? So if you can, for example, let's imagine as we do, you have an API product. Like there's a lot to be said for just having a self-sign up, 20 calls, sandbox account type thing, which enables you to get some kind of value out of an API without talking to anyone. Now, not everyone does that. And I think that certainly when you're talking about data products, there's always the, you know, which obviously power a lot of the enterprise, you know, big data products or things that combine other data sources. There's a lot of concern in some cases around, well, if they get logins and they get access, then they can just start looking at stuff. And so much of the value of our product is actually the data that we serve and they could just get a bunch copy of free it. accounts yeah. and, and copy it. Yeah. Now, of course, if your product is that easy to copy, then you're probably in trouble anyway, but at the same time, it's not a completely invalid concern. You, know, you need to be able to protect your intellectual property and be able to, I guess, hive off enough functionality that people can legitimately come in and look and get value and see the, the joy that they can get from using your platform without basically just opening the kimono and just letting them have everything. It's like, you, know, you, want, them to, you want them to actually buy it afterwards, right? Not yeah. just spider the entire you know, 5,000 uh, new accounts that they just open up and then just download everything and then yeah, they're gone again. So yeah, that's, not good for, that's not good for anyone. Okay. So, okay. so if you're um, 
if you're in a situation, you have, you have your product, you're working on a new product uh, or you're working on a product for a company. And how would you go about validating a new feature idea or concept with enterprise clients? Like how could you make sure that the feature or, or the improvements that you're putting in place will actually drive value for the customer? Well, a lot of it is obviously about discovery and that's not something that all companies that serve the enterprise are particularly good at. And, you know, to be fair, a lot of companies that serve any type of company, not, not everyone's doing discovery half as much as Teresa Torres says that you should, right? And that's just the thing that we have to own up to. And I think it's especially bad in business when you're maybe working with smaller markets, smaller, more niche functionality that where you know, maybe the people that you want to talk to, there just aren't that many of them. So I think that that in itself, though, does open up an opportunity because you can get closer to those people. Like if you're working with like one guy I was speaking to a little while back, he like works with like five oil companies or something like that. So there's an entire total adjustable market. Like there's very little chance for him to just go out into the street with a clipboard and say, hey, what do you think about my oil platform? It's like, that's just, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but you can build very good relationships with these people. And, you know, you want to be careful that you're not building too great a relationship with these people and making it so that you're just building stuff very specifically for them based on their very niche desires. But at the same time, you know, you get the chance to, do have or you do get the chance to have discovery with these people have discussions with people start to understand their world develop empathy with those people and start to understand what things actually are going to move the needle for them if it's not that bad and you're still working in a fairly small market like not a mass market social media but you're still working with say with like with us a lot of banks like there's a bunch of banks a bunch of financial institutions we've got plenty of people we can talk to so you just have to go and talk to them but of course then you get this user versus buyer dynamic again because you want to make sure that what you're building is actually useful for the people that are actually going to be using it but also hits the strategic goals that the people that are buying it and signing the manual checks of you know, the, the things that they care about so there's a lot of discovery you want to do discovery on a couple of different levels obviously also there are other sources that you can use like if you've got a sales team they're talking to customers all the time or prospects all the time you can't just do everything the sales team says in the order that they say it because that makes it a very tricky conversation. But at the same time, you shouldn't just discount sales feedback or customer success feedback, account manager feedback. These are all good sources of feedback and you should absolutely try and bring those in and synthesize those in as much as possible alongside things like industry reports. I mean, of course, if you're working, in a, working for companies, working with the enterprise, these enterprises are going to be in an industry of some sort and there will be wonderful Gartner and other types of reports out there on these things. Yes. So you can start to try to dig out macro level trends, try and dig out industry experts. Again, are these as good as doing your good old fashioned discovery? Maybe, maybe not, but you still have to be conscious of the fact that these reports and this data exists out there and really try to get ahead of the curve. Because for me, one of the biggest reasons that, you see the constant problem that people have with, say, sales-led feature requests and people kind of being bullied around by big clients and stuff like that. For me, if you've done your positioning work and your value proposition work well enough, and if you've done enough discovery that you've actually managed to build things in advance of people asking for them, then anything that you actually get asked for becomes truly niche and you can discount it on that basis rather than people actually very legitimately coming to you with things that your product should do. And it just didn't do it because no one asked for it yet and you didn't think about it. So 
I think that it's important to get ahead of the curve. And a lot of that just does boil down to discovery. And then, of course, trying to build as little as possible in a very lean fashion, build as little as possible so you can then get that in front of people. Now, again, if you're working with enterprises, they probably don't want you turning stuff on and off too much. With us, again, if you've got an API product, people don't want the API response to change all the time. Mm-hmm. This is plumbed into their systems. So you need to be very careful with that. And that's where you start offering rather than just random A-B tests and moving the button around and all that sort of stuff, start to think about things like beta programs and guided demos and stuff like that. Hmm. So in that case, so you have all these different signals that are coming in. You have uh, maybe some of the customers actually have your phone number, so they're calling you, asking for things <laughs> directly. You have sales on one side, you have your executives. Uh, you're getting feedback. You're seeing the analytics on the product. Things are not exactly perfectly the way you want them to be. You're also kind of figuring out what the core is. Like, how do you, how do you, as a as a product leader, like, how do you make sense of all these signals to know what is the core and what you should be prioritizing uh, when there's multiple stakeholders, when there's both on your side and on the the, the customer side? Like, how do you make sense of all of this? Well, you just do what the CEO says, right? I mean, that's the easiest option. But, uh, <laughs> For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's hard. And it's more of an art than a science, I think, to some regard. I mean, if, for example, you're in that 30, 40, 50, whatever percent, one client situation, a lot of times you are going to end up doing stuff for that client. Because again, if that client walks, so do some of your colleagues. Like, you have to be conscious of that reality. If you're in a position where you've got a healthier mix of, revenue and you're not kind of in a position to be bullied so much then a lot of it then comes down to well what is your position what is your strategy what is it that you actually say that you do what is it you're taking out to the market with your salespeople? what do you claim that you should be able to do and are the things that people are asking for things that fit within that now i've seen it referred to or seen the concept referred to as like don't go out to clients or customers or users and just ask them for feature requests because a that implies that you're just going to do them in the order that they get asked for and that's not necessarily true or yeah you might not even do them at all so it's more about asking for feedback and kind of you know reassuring people that this is all being looked at that you'll go back to them with an answer and that some of the stuff you'll do and some of the some of it you won't and that if you can't do it Either here's some workarounds or, you know, sorry, you're just going to have to use a different tool. Now, that's not, <laughs> that's not an easy conversation for all types of company, especially, again, if you're a smaller company, if your revenue mix is off, if you've got lots of competitors that kind of do this stuff already, you can start to kind of feel very defensive and that you have to build these things. And you will get a lot of pressure from the higher up people in the company because, again, they don't want to lose all this money. And you have to be very conscious of that. And I think that as with anything, you are going to have to be flexible from time to time. Like again, big client wants something, existential problem. If, if they go, need to work something out. If you have compliance or regulatory stuff that you have to handle, that's just a, a legal requirement, then that's going to have to get done from time to time. You don't really want to be in a situation where you're, prioritizing stuff just because a client asked for it or a prospect asked for it you know that's never a great position to be in but if you are pushed into that situation then at least try and track it well first of all try and track or define metrics that you can track to see if that was a successful thing 
did we win that deal? Or did it go in the same bucket as all the other deals that we didn't win from all the other things that we got asked for? And try to abstract or genericize what people are asking for as well. So if they come to you and say, we want a button to do X, well, first of all, is that a thing that supports the goals that we've identified before? Like, does that support our strategy? Does that support any of the functionality that we claim that we should be doing? Okay, fine. Well, maybe we consider that. But can we make that a button that doesn't just work for one client? Can we make that a button that works for loads of clients? Is this actually functionality that we should have? Is this, in many ways, as I believe it is these days, really just a different type of discovery that people are asking for stuff just because you didn't ask them first doesn't mean that it's not something that you can then or that you shouldn't then investigate and say, okay, fine, well, people want this button. Let's go and find out, you know, A, what's the job to be done, all that classic discovery stuff. But, you know, once you've identified what they're trying to solve, is this actually something that we want to solve? Let's go and do some more discovery and find out if that is something that we want to solve. But I think a lot of it all boils down to the fact that many companies don't actually have solid product strategies. They're kind of just doing what people ask them to do. And there's nothing wrong with that as an approach as such. Like plenty of companies just do things that people ask them to do and they're moderately successful. But I do think that if you want to really make a big difference and really deliver something that they can't get anywhere else, then you actually have to get ahead of that curve, get used to turning down feature requests and random segues or, hey, let's do a blockchain or whatever it is that comes up in kind of day-to-day business or because the CFO or the CEO or whoever saw an article and thinks that this is a thing that we should look at now. You have to get ahead of that curve and you have to really concentrate on what's actually important, what your differentiated value is, what your IP is to some extent. You know, what can people not get from other people that they can get from you? Because you know, otherwise you're just racing to the bottom. So trying to make sure that you do have that strategy a strong position, that's what you're actually selling rather than going out there just selling whatever the person in front of you asks for. Because again, you just end up chasing your tail in that situation. And half the time, what they ask for doesn't even actually even win the deal anyway. Well, so if we talk about that, then like how would you go about clarifying that strategy, that 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 plan or that vision or that that core that you're kind of what you're about? that kind of allows you to make all these decisions afterwards. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of this presupposes that the company actually itself has a strategy, right? So got to start there. Like, if you can go up to the leadership of your company and say, what's our strategy? And they can't tell you, then there's some work to do there. And hopefully, if you're a product company and that's all you sell, you can be very instrumental in helping to set that strategy. But if there is a company strategy, then, well, do you have a product strategy? Like, did you actually bother to take the time and make one? Yeah, it sounds stupid, but not everyone does. Or worse still, you find companies where they have multiple product strategies all going in different directions for just different bits of the same product. So that's a tricky one because you get a lot of politics potentially even within the startup, right? It's a complete lie that startups are completely egalitarian, politics-free zones. You know, there's plenty of politics in startups because these people are just people that come from other companies originally, right? There's no special thing about startups that mean that people don't get protective or defensive about their ideas or start playing games. So I think ultimately it requires strong leadership. And of course, if you don't have strong, if you don't have strong leadership, then you're in trouble because you can't necessarily affect that yourself. But if you do have strong leadership, then working with those people to try to get to the nub of what it is that you actually offer 
and not just that you're just doing whatever comes in you know, as an example so my company merged with another company middle of last year would have been the easiest thing in the world to just do whatever came up you know just in the order that it came up but we spent a lot of good time with both sides of the house as we came together as a company to work out what the strategy was what the position was what the vision was what we're going to do as a combined entity the problems that we're going to solve what we're not going to solve and what things we're going to need to prioritize to get there now of course that's always going to get put under stress when the next big client comes in waving 50 grand that, that's always going to happen and again sometimes you're going to have to think about it and say well actually we really need that 50 grand <laughs> and you have to try and then do something to try and to get that but again if you really have a strong position and you're sitting there saying this is what we're selling this is these are the, you know these use cases are the ones that we claim to be able to serve and these are the people we claim to be able to serve them for then again anything that isn't inside that becomes legitimately niche and it's fair enough if the leadership team come to you and say that they want you to go in a certain direction because of x but at least you've done the work in advance and you call it out and say okay fine well that's you know if we have to do that we do also have to appreciate that that's off off the plan if you're making me go off plan that's cool but we have to understand that the plan isn't the plan anymore and you're not just able to just add stuff on you know things become an, an or not an and right so people have to realize and, and in many cases if they sit there and say oh well but we still need the plan it's okay well you have to choose maybe not quite like that but you know much more delicately than that but people do have to choose we can't just do everything at the same time. So you're kind of using using that strategy or the, these these guidelines that you define as a lens to, to from which to analyze everything that's coming yeah. coming through. In that case, like, how do you make sure? Like, as, I assume that that probably pulls you in a more uh, strategic decision or pulls you in certain the directions. How do you make sure that that some of these uh, other things that we talked about? So, like the the end user satisfaction, for example, or maybe technical debt, like things that can tend to kind of be pushed on the side, also get addressed. Do you kind of work with like, you have different buckets that you're working with? Like, how do you make sure that everything kind of at least gets that gets touched when they, they need to be? Yeah, I think that operating some level of portfolio is not a bad strategy, especially if you're in a more complicated company. And of course, it doesn't really get much more complicated than sticking two companies together as we've been doing. So like there is stuff that we have to take care of that isn't immediately user beneficial, you know, platforms coming together and stuff like that. And that's fine. You know, you have to allocate some level of time for that because it is important. And, you know, I'm not, I'm definitely not of the situation. I'm definitely not of the opinion that technical debt is this, this nice to have fixy thing that you do, you know, when you've got some spare time or, you know, when all of the user work's done, because a, the user work's never done, but B, the technical debt affects, eventually will affect the users, right? I mean, it's, it's, we all know this, like you can't just have a system that's just getting worse and worse and worse and just keep building on top of it yeah. because eventually it'll give way. So I think one of the big things for me is like, well, if we're as product people going to our senior stakeholders, to the other people in the business and saying, hey, I want to shut everything down for six months to do a replatforming effort. That's never going to fly. Right? No, one, no one wants that, especially when the end result is it looks basically the same as the beginning. It's just on faster service. Like we know that there's benefits to that. We know that it's good for the business and good for our users. 
but it doesn't look any different and people are going to very much struggle to bond with that if they're not technical people if they don't understand actually what we're doing so a lot of the work that i think good product teams do is try to translate that technical debt work not into oh we need to move from this type of bucket to this type of bucket or whatever else but actually this is the before and after state and what it means to our users what does it mean to our users okay well you know if we don't do this and we get one more client we're dead that's maybe an extreme example but that's something that resonates with everyone we did a demo to the company our current company don't don't say current (laughs) (laughs) cut that bit out um we did we did a demo for my company the other day where the engineering team showed a kind of before and after after some you know big uh, migration effort that's kind of gone in the background it's been a portion of our work it's been going alongside other initiatives and the ultimate upshot of it was big bunch of performance improvements and you could kind of see in real time doing some load testing against it like how many extra users we can support on less hardware like that's something that you know, it resonates with the business as a whole because there's a financial impact there you know, we're using less servers or fewer servers and we're able to serve more customers so the next time we get that big account in from whoever when we're selling into who, whoever the next big client is we're able to support them without blinking rather than having to worry every time we get an account that there's a whole new amount of work or shoveling to do just to get those onto the start point. So I think technical debt is crucially important. I mean, coming from a development background myself, it's not something that I'm ever going to ignore. And it's, you know, it's the same when it comes to bugs and, you know, CS requests and stuff like that. You know, there are going to be things that come in. You know, not all software is perfect and you're going to be in a situation from time to time where there's a legitimate blocking bug that comes in and frankly you've got to fix it you know if it's a blocking bug for functionality that is supposed to work and does something you know, it's something that legitimately is supposed to work on your platform and there's no way around it you probably have to fix it i mean you don't have to drop everything and fix it instantly but you definitely need to fix it pretty soon if it's something with a workaround well try and work your cs team to get a workaround to keep people happy if it's something that you legitimately can say isn't a thing that we ever said worked it's actually a feature request and that just goes into the same funnel as all your feature requests, right? But so, you know, I, I don't treat all bug reports as equal. I think you need to categorize them and have a triage process and just get them through. And you do obviously need to keep your customers happy because if you're not happy, if they're not happy, they're not going to renew potentially. You know, people will live with a lot as it turns out, like people don't expect perfect software, especially in the enterprise where they're used to not having perfect software. But at the same time, it's like death by a thousand cuts, right? If you keep having bugs and inconsistencies and performance problems and stuff like that, then eventually they're going to go. So you do want to keep on top of the worst stuff and just put it through the prioritization lens, try and have a good triage process. And again, if we have that portfolio approach across the top and say, well, fine, not exactly, but ideally we want to spend roughly 10% on this sort of stuff, 20% on this sort of stuff, 70% on the rest of the stuff. And yeah, just try to make as much progress as you can in different areas and just keep as many people happy as possible. So if, if I'm kind of reading between the lines, like I'm kind of understanding that things like that, technical debt, for example, or bugs, uh, you're kind of looking at it like I need to have some kind of business case for these oftentimes, either to justify it to internal stakeholders or just to make sure that there's a rationale if people are asking why I'm doing this versus I'm doing that. Yeah, I think it's important for the product team to have a good solid hold on things like bugs, things like tech debt, because they are going to be service impacting eventually. 
And if we care about our users, we care about our services working. But at the same time, I don't want to sit there having arguments about whether something is more or less important than something else if that thing actually isn't important. Mm. You know, so like, for example, there's a rounding error on one part of a scorecard somewhere, but actually the number's fine. It's just, you know, it's, it's 0 0.01 out and actually the margin of error is more than that anyway or something like that. It's like, yeah, sure, it's kind of frustrating, but it's easily explainable and we'll get to it. Whereas, I don't know, clicking the download button to get a report and the report doesn't come, that's a big problem and there's no way for them to fix that. So that becomes mm. a more important thing. So I think it's important to, to, again, have a good triage process when you're working with enterprise customers because, again, what we've got to realize is that enterprise customers, in many cases, they're actually used to more of a service engagement with other types of enterprise companies that sell them services on top of the platforms if they even sell them platforms. So there is a kind of expectation to some degree, especially when you're spending or where they're spending tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars or whatever it is that they're spending, there is an expectation for quality there. That doesn't make it easy to do things like MVPs and quick tests and stuff like that. But at the same time, the stakes are higher. So you have to be very conscious of what you can and can't do with these people. But at the same time, this whole kind of concept of saying, just say no to every single request doesn't 100% fly. You can't just say yes to everything, but you can't say no to everything when there's hundreds of thousands of pounds on the table for, you know, potentially for certain requests. So you, know, you want to be as good product management people as possible and you want to put everything through as much of a good decision process as possible so you're not just twitching and jumping around doing whatever comes up next because someone shouted yeah that's not product management <laughs> yeah, you, you but at the same time it's not just as simple as saying oh well if this person isn't happy and they leave then hey whatever it's like oh this, this person leaves that's you know 12 people have to get fired <laughs> yeah so it's yeah, not yeah. uh not quite the same relationship so we talked about a lot of the challenges of being a product manager in and the enterprise with enterprise products or working in enterprise with products, you, you, we talked about prioritization, working with different stakeholders, uh, also managing different stakeholders, the expectations. Um, what do you feel are the advantages of going enterprise first when you're a startup, like starting with the enterprise? I guess one of the biggest advantages is there's a lot of money there to be had, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. again, I think you you did, I think you talk about this in your book as well when you're in the first edition. It's like, if you get it right, then these are big deals. Yeah, they can sustain a lot through these deals. The annual contract value can be high. The retention and the switching costs are sometimes quite high as well. So like if you get embedded with people, you can become true partners to them and really help them A, a enable their business and B, sustain your business. And these are good things to do. I think also, for me, a big attraction about selling into enterprises and selling into businesses in general is, as we kind of touched on earlier, a lot of times these people are used to using really terrible software. Now, I used to work in an enterprise, and I know some of the horrible software we had to use because some person in some part of the company knew someone from that company that provided the software and that's the, that was their favorite software. And it was a little bit cheaper than the other software or whatever else. And just sit there day after day, thousands, tens of thousands of people slogging through horrible applications, things crashing all the time, functionality missing, doesn't connect to other stuff. And you're just sort of sitting there in the evening working on some side project or you know, just doing your social media or whatever, just seeing how good things could be. So I think there's a lot of 
joy to be brought to people's lives if you can build good enterprise products you know for people that are working in these companies that make their lives easier save time save money for their companies sure but just make their lives easier i mean no one should be sitting there in this day and age struggling and slogging through these horrible applications just doing horrible repetitive work and feeling valueless because they don't get time to do any good thinking because all the work is spent sort of jockeying data between different applications or whatever so i think there's a lot of meaningful change that you can make by building good applications for big businesses because the kind of the ampli the amplification is is such because of the scale of the people that you're selling into that you're making a decent effect to the you know frankly large number of hours that people spend at work every day oh that's a great point so maybe as a last question so how do you see B2B and enterprise, the B2B and enterprise space evolving moving forward? Like what trends are you tracking? Like you've been around a long time. You speak to a lot of product leaders. <laughs> uh, I don't mean that as a negative. <laughs> but you, you've, you, you speak to a lot of product leaders. You're at the forefront of a lot of these, this thinking. So how do you see things moving forward? Well, I think a couple of trends that I've seen and kind of think are going to bubble up a little bit more in B2B this year i think discovery is becoming more and more of a popular concept i mean it's not a new thing of course people have been doing that in proper quote in air quotes product companies for a while now but it's i think something that's been not so quick to catch on in especially selling into the enterprise because of these sort of high value customers and talking to people with very specific domain skills and i've definitely been in conversations in the past where i've been told well hey your team aren't like 20-year experts in this industry, so you wouldn't be able to talk to these people. It's like, well, that's actually not true. So I think that B2B discovery is going to become more of a thing. And I also think that, well, I like to think that people are getting used to the idea of doing discovery, doing discovery with sales and they're actually involving themselves and getting close to the sales team. It's certainly something I'm trying to push for as well in some of the commentary that I do and some of the work that I do. We can't treat sales teams marketing teams customer success teams as you know basically the enemy or worse still the business like a whole different area of the world and we're not in that business i know we're all in the same business we've all got the same basic goal of a successful company we just have different ideas about how to get there and one of the things that i'm hoping will happen over the next year or so is people start to you know from the product side move towards those people as well as expecting those people to move towards us because i think it's so common for us to sit there and say hey salespeople suck because they just care about sales it's like that's their job they're being paid to sell stuff they're not being paid to develop a product if you can give them a product that they can sell i'm sure they'll sell it and they'll happily sell it so you know maybe read a book about sales every now and then rather than just reading all your product books i mean read the product books too but you know just try and get closer to them and empathize with them as well as them empathizing with you and I also think that the product ops trend will be ongoing. And as companies scale and some of the more established companies and startups that are selling into B2B get bigger and have to scale out and get more complicated, I do think that product ops, no matter what some people say about it, and I've definitely got my own opinions about sort of over-process of stuff, but at the same time, I do think that that will be a burgeoning trend as companies start to scale out there's a lot of companies now kind of going unicorn or getting bigger and scaling really strongly. So I think that product ops will be a thing and I don't think that's going to go anywhere anytime soon. Awesome. Awesome. 
So thanks for taking the time, Jason. Uh, where can people go to learn more about your work, your podcast? Well, if they want to learn about the podcast, the easiest place to go would be onenightinproduct.com. That's night with a K. They can also find me on Twitter, one Jason Knight. Also on LinkedIn, just Jason Dash Knight, I think. I mean, sure, you can put those all in the show notes. But yeah, I'm happy to chat to people. I've been doing a lot of mentoring recently. It's been really eye-opening. I think it's really good to just hear people's stories from companies that I haven't worked in and start to understand that the things that I'm sort of hearing and seeing and in some cases assuming are actually true. And you hear those again and again. So I always love speaking to people, always love connecting with people. And uh, yeah, we'll all get through this product management stuff together, right? And you got to get the memes. The memes are amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah, I think that's the thing. If you, uh, if you can't be insightful, at least put a funny picture on the bottom and then people will like it anyway. Well, there's a little skill to it, skill to it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much.